You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Uh, we're in a new series uh, that we started last week entitled uh, Alternative Community. And so if you were to go to our website, um, our kind of mission statement, right? This is what all the experts say. You put your mission statement on the homepage, right? So we, or if you went to our homepage, the first thing that you would see would be this statement, uh, proclaiming the way of Jesus for the good of the city. We believe that when God's people are following God, when they're living in the way of Jesus, that that's actually the best possible thing for the city. That when we take on the the ethic that Jesus took on, when we live in the line and the pattern in which Jesus lived, it actually makes the city better. Like the city's better. And so that is our mission. That is who we are as a church, is we're people proclaiming the way of Jesus with the belief that it's for the good of the city. And so we're in a new series called Alternative Community. Now, the basis behind this idea of alternative um, community is how in the world, like if that's the reality, that as we live in the way of Jesus, is actually good for the city, it's actually good for us, right, in our communities, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Like, what does it actually look like to be an alternative community within living within the community that we find ourselves in? We're in a distinct moment in time. Um, Paul, so Paul was an early church leader. Uh, He used to be a persecutor of the church. He had an encounter with Jesus. And when you have an encounter with Jesus, it changes you. And it changed him. And so Paul wrote a ton of New Testament letters. And and, uh, there's one moment where he's in uh, Athens and he's talking about uh, the gospel and the good news. And he says this to the people in Athens. He says, hey, God is over the world and he's so much over the world that he's determined the times and the boundaries in which people live. So you may have shown up in Boston and you thought it was for your job and like it brought you here. Or you came to Boston, you're like, okay, I've got this residency in front of me, this like four, five, you know, thing in front of me, this like business school, or you came for class or whatever. Maybe you came after a significant other person, you know what I mean, Uh, whatever. And the reality is, is that you thought you were in Boston because of that. But what the scriptures tell us and what the reality is, is that you're in Boston because God brought you to Boston. And we live in this distinct moment in time that God's determined the boundaries that in 2022, this is where we find ourselves. So the beauty and the reality of that is we are built. We are uniquely and specifically built for this moment. Like this cultural moment, we're built for it. We're built for it. And so this morning, we're gonna be looking at all kinds of things over the next few weeks, but here's the, let me give you the where we're going this morning. Uh, So this morning, we're essentially looking at what does it mean to be a community of loving relationships in a culture of individualism? What does it mean to be a community of loving relationships? This is what we're called to in the way of Jesus. This is what the church ideally is supposed to be in a cultural moment of, of individualism. Now, let's talk for a moment. So let me, we're gonna, let me run quickly through some history. I think we can hang in there, but it's going to be a bit for a moment. I want to look at how did we move from we to me? 
Like, how did this transition happen? Because, um, and this is hard for, honestly, this is really hard for us. So the kind of cultural norm that the, the individual is what is most important is historically a new cultural thought that has not always been the case. It hasn't always been about me, it's about we. So let's, let me run through this um, and, and hang in there with me and, uh, and we'll, we'll go through it. Okay, so this is what happened. Uh, so basically before the Industrial Revolution happened, about 250 years ago, um, if you were to kind of look, um, uh, most of our world was made up of kind of non-urban societies. And if you were looking at these non-urban societies, they're gonna be organized around long-term communities with people. So this would be clans or tribes, extended families, uh, feudal land systems. Work and family were highly interlinked together. Highly interlinked together. They were, these communities, these large communities that existed were about surviving off of the land and laboring together. There's this type of network working together. So then we get into the Industrial Revolution, late 1700s or so. And in work, what begins to happen, it changes work and it changes the way that we think about communities. So work increasingly became found in factories, uh, away from the home, outside of the home, and often in dense urban communities. So it went from kind of tightly knit community, working together, surviving together, into the Industrial Revolution, that, which then changed work from, you know, now you leave the home, you're in these kind of urban centers and you're doing, uh, you're doing this type of work inside of factories. So families, husbands, wives, sons and daughters begin to be dispersed into work. This is what we see kind of the thing happening. People were beginning to move into different places. People were getting to move further away from their home base. The Industrial Revolution changed the way we think about work. It also changed the way that we think about communities that we live in, the community that we exist in the way they function. The community went from being this kind of highly interdependent family or farm where we relied on one another for help and for assistance and the value of the individual increased. The value of the individual. The, the need for kind of a large communal thinking essentially disappeared. It wasn't a necessary thing anymore. The family uh, essentially became a, a large group. It went from a large group in order to survive to a family group that was smaller, smaller, and smaller. And then the mission of the family then changed from, it changed from working the land together, survival together, to let us get enough income so that we can consume more. Do you see that transition? This is what the Industrial Revolution kind of did to our kind of cultural or society or cultural moment. Went from family, farm system, now to the individual has increased. Now, Western societies have moved from the Industrial Revolution, so into a, what we call a post-Industrial Revolution. See how smart we are? In the post-Industrial Revolution age, there's an increased value on knowledge. On knowledge. So in modern America, uh, most of us don't work on farms or factories, right? You're not gonna hop out on Newberry, take a ride on Commonwealth, and find yourself on a farm. Uh, most of us are working in offices, in buildings, in the information age, in biotech, uh, in healthcare, um, education, whatever it is. If you're a student, you're in school, finance. The value of information has now been elevated to a extremely high place. And so in the same way that kind of the large communal system faded in the Industrial Revolution, 
Now what we see is community and family units have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller until we find ourselves in our moment. Now, here's what happened as a result of all this. Um, the individual is now seen as primary, right? You have your skill set, your gifting, your network, your job, right? Your money, your portfolio. The individual has now been elevated to a place that the individual has never held before. Now for us, um, for us it's interesting because this is actually just the, the world we've grown up in. Like this is just the world we know. Like we don't even know that it has shaped us the way that it has shaped us. It's the way it's, it's shaped the way we think about community with one another and care for one another. We, we've moved from um, what they used to call, uh, so they used to call it thick communities that were connected by these tightly inner, inner kind of webs and now have moved, and from thick communities, we moved in what they call thin communities that was like um, Kiwanis Club, bowling, right? Anybody in a bowling club anymore? Is that like a thing? Okay, right. So that was kind of like those, those like thin, uh, those kind of thin communities that people would, um, that people would be a part of and be connected in. And, and so there was a little bit of that. And what's now happened is we moved from thick communities to thin communities to what now they call peg communities. Let me, uh, let me read um, what that means. This was based out of a philosopher. He said, uh, A.J. Swoboda, he wrote a book called The Sub uh, Subversive Sabbath. And uh, it's an incredible read if you've never read it before, you should. This is what he says. He says, peg communities, as Bauman writes, that's the um, philosopher, he says, uh, their communities forged by disconnected spectators around a mutually loved experience like a rock concert or a sporting match. Their participation is a feeling or a sense around something shared. Uh, ethical communities, which he said are the healthy, loving communities, in stark contrast, are long-term commitments that are marked by the giving up of rights and service for one another. In short, ethical communities are, are built on relationships of responsibilities. These are responsibilities formed by commitment, love, covenant and even kind of the familial fidelity. So it's like this idea that the, the, the communities that we're to be a part of as God's people should be characterized by love and commitment towards one another. This is one of the fundamental shifts in our social matrix is that our relationships are increasingly made up of peg communities rather than these ethical communities. We doing good? Follow along so far? We're doing good? All right. So we live in a day of peg communities. Now, what's the problem with that? Peg communities were not built, were not built to help stabilize and bring about loving relationships. They're not made for that. Like they're, they're not that way. That's not their purpose. Instead of communities that are built on commitment and longevity, family ties, the society that we now find ourselves in is that we have communities built on what? Common interests? fueled by shared experiences. So you can sign up for a book club because you want to catch up on the latest like fiction book. I'm reading a book called The Wing Feather Saga. It's for, I think it's for teens, but it's real good. All right, so um, so you sign up for a book club and it's going great and you love it. And then you get, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks in, whatever it, it is. And they pick a new book. And you're like, I hate that book. I actually dislike that book. I'm not coming to this book club anymore. I hate you guys. You know what? You wouldn't say that. So you're out. Or say you went to a Celtics game, right? Because that's way more fun than a Red Sox game. And say you're at the game and you're experiencing the energy of that room and you're experiencing the energy of that shared experience with the person beside you. And you're like, this is fantastic. We're feeling good about it. And then you come back the next week 
and you sit down and there's that same feeling of excitement and energy and this, this camaraderie in the room and the person next to you is not even the same person. This is a pet community. It's not known by its loving commitment to one another. It's essentially known by what it's doing for you as the individual. I mean, think, think about the day that we're in, right? So we can have a curated music list. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, you got to get the single, you know, if you don't want to deal with the rest of the stuff. And then or if you get the cassette tape, you get the cassette tape and you have to record it. And, and then you have to create, some of you know what I'm talking about. You have to create this thing. And then we got the CD it was like revolutionary because then we could, right now it's like, no, I mean, I'll just create a playlist. I don't even go to the store to buy it. I don't need to do any of that. I can watch whatever season I want to watch commercial free if I pay $9.99 or whatever. The number one thing that kids want to be now is a YouTuber, my daughter included. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a YouTuber. Uh, is that the right words? I don't even know. All right, so there's nothing wrong with that. But if you were to get underneath that, I would, I would guess and assume that the majority of that reason that you want to be a YouTuber is because what? Self-glorification, right? Self-esteem. I live by my iPhone and I'm preaching on my iPad, which in 2022 sounds stupid, right? This is our day that we're in. This is the water that we're swimming in, that we don't even recognize how we've been shaped by, the, by this idea and this thought that the individual is what matters most. Now, the problem with all of that is that we are called to what? Be an alternative community. We're called to live differently. We're called to recognize how we are shaped and form and ensure that how we've been shaped and form aligns with the scriptures that we read and with the Jesus that we follow. And the Jesus that we follow, if he is anything, he is not interested, although he could have been in elevation of self. Elevation of self. This is how we've moved from we to me. We've been unknowingly trained to value our preferences, our tastes, and freedoms above anything else. This is how we've been trained as a people. David Jensen, he's a professor, uh, he, he said this. He said, the 20th century will be remembered as an age of wondrous creativity when Americans voluntarily shatter their lives into distant and dissonant fragments. Americans' industries learn how to assemble atomic bombs, airplanes, iPads, and the genetic codes of life itself in the same era that America socially disassembled the ancient overlap of family, food, faith, and the field of work. He says this, Americans reached for the stars as they withered their roots, inhabited space, but lost any sense of space. This is our age. This is our day. This is what we are looking at. Now, here's what we see in scripture. We see that Jesus we see the early New Testament leaders and we see the church obsessed with this idea of loving community towards one another, like talking about it all the time, organizing around it and chatting about Jesus. So Jesus is, um, he's praying for his followers, his future followers in John 17, 21 and 23. And listen what he says. These are like his final prayer words that we get insight into. It says, may they all be one as you father are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and lo have loved them as you have loved me. 
So his last prayer to a people is what? I need, I'm going to pray that they would be a people who would be one, united in love towards one another, like you and I are, Father. That's my prayer for them, that they would be connected in this way, that they would care for one another in this way. Jesus actually says that the strongest apologetic to the world that we have is how we treat one another in this space. Uh, John 13, 31 through 35, it says, when he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. He says, little children, I'm leaving. I'm not gonna be with you much longer. You'll look for me just as I told the Jews. Now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. Now this is what he says. He says, I give you a new command. He says, love one another. Just as I have loved you and you also are to love one another. And he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, by the way that you treat one another. Now it's fascinating. So Jesus doesn't, think about that for a second, depending on your kind of like faith background, religious background. Jesus doesn't say the world will know you based on your theological acumen based on like how well you can break down and study the scriptures, based on how many resources you give to the kingdom, based on how much you come to church, based on whatever your attendance is, based on how much you pray. All those things, very important, very, very important. But he says, the way in the which the world will know that you belong to me is how you treat one another, how you communicate to one another, how you care for one another. Are you selfishness and centric to me and an individual are you doing the work that God's called us into community a healthy Christian doesn't say am I going to be a part of a community of faith a healthy Christian says how do I promote harmony and love and unity in the community in which I find myself in this is the work that we've been called into this is what we see True Christian community, um, it's not identifiable as Christian community if love isn't centric to what it is. It lacks the essence of what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means to be in a community with other followers. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, a, a German theologian. He says this, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses falls apart. If the community is not caring and loving for one another, interceding for one another, it collapses, it falls down, it breaks down. Paul, on his instructions to the church in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, he says, but you're called to be free, brothers and sisters. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But he says what? Serve one another through love. Verse 14, for the whole law, the whole law, these are Jewish people. For the whole law, everything that we've been reading is fulfilled in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. They're obsessed with it. Can't get away from it. Okay. She's like, all right, got it, dude. I'm unbelievably selfish and individualistic. Got it. All right, thanks. All right, great. We need to all be there together. We see the scriptures prioritizing. So how in the world are we to do this? Like, how, how is this going to happen? Three, three ways that we're going to look at this. I want to look at why don't we prioritize loving relationships? I want to look at in what ways do we isolate ourselves from loving relationships? And then how are we supposed to do this? 
Why don't we prioritize loving relationships? In what ways are we isolating ourselves from loving relationships? And how are we to do this? So start with the why. Uh, three things why we don't tend to prioritize loving uh, relationships um, and where we find ourselves. The first one, and this is legitimate, is a legitimate fear of judgment. It's like, hey, if I get close enough to others, I have the very, is there a very real possibility that they're going to judge me in a way that is, quite frankly, toxic, unhealthy. Now, there's two types of judgment, right? If we, if we want to like lay it out, there's actually unhealthy judgment and there's like a healthy type of judgment. Unhealthy judgment, all it seeks to do is break you down. All it seeks to do is be right. That's how you know if it's toxic judgment. If it's unhelpful judgment, it is just a type of judgment that is not restorative. Healthy, a type of healthy judgment, is restorative. It's, it's, it's trying to bring you back into the way of Jesus, back into a way of human flourishing, right? It's not simply trying to break you down by saying, hey, you're not living this way, you're not living according this way, you're not doing this. It's, it's like, no, no, no. It's saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to bring you into somewhere. I'm trying to bring you into um, a restorative type of place. Maybe you're like, didn't, G didn't Jesus say something about not judging people? Uh, Jesus, uh, he's an incredible storyteller, metaphor. This is what he does all throughout the scripture. Uh, and so in Matthew 7, uh, I won't read it, but he basically says this. He's like, hey, don't, he's like, why are you judging someone about the speck in their eye when you have a log in your eye? Which is like, I don't know where that metaphor came from, but beautiful. And so he says, before you take the speck out of the eye of your brother or sister, remove the log from your eye. And then what does he say? Does he say, remove the log from your eye and then walk along? No, he actually says, hey, before you go to, to seek to help your brother and sister, he says, remove the log from your eye so that when you go to your brother and sister, you can see more clearly. He doesn't say don't go to your brother and sister. He says, remove that one first so that you can see more clearly, so that you can bring a type of um, restorative, uh, a type of restorative uh, health, a type of thing that is ultimately good. See, good judgment, right? Is what? Is what? Or uh, it's um, it's loving. It's patient. It's kind. It's restorative. It's the fruits of the spirit. Unhealthy is unpatient, unloving, unkind, destructive. But there is a sense in which, if we're going to be an alternative community within the community that we find ourselves in, we have to find this healthy balance. And so some of you are like, man, I have some legitimate fear. Uh, and it could be um, healthy fear of judgment or it could be unhealthy fear of judgment. The second thing that we, uh, is a very real reality that keeps people from stepping into loving relationships is past hurt. Some of you have legitimate church hurt. The longer that I do this, the more I sit down with people, the more uh, real, the, the reality that lands on me is there's been so many people hurt by the church. So many, like unbelievable. And, and so there's a tendency, and there's some, there's some of you in the room, I know that because we talk, like there, there's a tendency to say, okay, as a result of my past hurt, I'm not going to step into loving community with others. I, I, I'm just not gonna do it. Like it's, it's too scary. Uh, I just, I, I, I cannot do it. And, and I just wanna say, I get it. Like, and there's different levels of hurt. There's different ways in which we have to navigate that hurt. I'm a huge fan of therapy, right? She's like my best friend. So I'm, like, I'm, I'm all about that. 
but it is not an excuse for those following the way of Jesus to say, no, I'm, I'm not doing it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, he was a former uh, atheist agnostic who became uh, a Christian, a defender of the faith. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that movie. Okay, it was a book. All right, here we go. Book for a movie. You guys good? We're good? Okay, all right. C.S. Lewis, this is what he says about the beauty and the danger of loving one another. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. He says, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. He says the alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. And he says this, this, this line right here. He says the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. He says you want to be safe from the dangers of, hell, of love? Go to hell. That's the only place. Because love doesn't exist there. We should move on. All right, number two, number three. Uh, some of you just straight up have commitment phobia. You're just like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to keep my options open, right? This should tell them what can come down the pike. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm feeling it right now, but maybe not later. Mark Edmondson, he was a professor of English at um, University of Virginia. Go, I don't know what they are. Cat, I don't know, okay. Um, he wrote an article called Dwelling in Possibilities. You can Google it. It's incredible. This is what he said about his students. He said, my students are possibility junkies. He says, for as much as they want to do and actually manage to do, they always strive to keep their options open. Never ever to shut the possibilities down, which means they cannot commit to one thing or to two things. Some of you are like, man, I, I, it's hard for me to step in a loving community because, man, well, if there's another loving community that I'm feeling. Just like, I don't, do I want to commit? Again, I, I think this is directly about our kind of individualistic age that we find ourselves in, where the self is elevated. And you're just like, ah, I, don't, I don't know, maybe something else comes. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a community that I can be a part of that benefits me in more ways than just one. I mean, don't we, don't we, like, don't we do, don't we base, va don't we make like value assessments on people that we meet? So if you were on the doing like a one to 10 on the value assessment, 10 is most useful. One is like, eh. Don't we do that? Like, it's like 10, 10, eight, six. Oh, you're one. Oh, no, what do you do? Oh, seven. Don't we do that? Unknowingly do that with people? Make these type of assessments based on what people can do for us, their value in our eyes? This is not the way of Jesus. This is not what it means to be a part of a loving community. And so we have to change that. We have to make a commitment. If we're going to be a people living in the city of Boston, living in New England, we're going to have to say, I refuse to operate that way. I know I'm in a city that, listen, if you're living in a city, you're living in New England, you're, you're like going to be a driven individual that has all kinds of things coming at them. I totally get it. I know because I try and get coffee with you. Like I know it's chaos. I know you have a ton of stuff going on. But we got to come to a place where we're saying, I'm, I'm going to land and commit and, and be present. Okay, so we have um, fear of judgment, 
we have past hurt and we have commitment phobia. Okay. In what ways do we isolate ourselves? So there's maybe the why we don't tend to step in loving community. In what ways do we isolate ourselves? Three ways in which we isolate ourselves. See if you can recognize yourself on this spectrum. Uh, maybe the ways in which you isolate yourself from loving relationships is physically. So what I mean by that is like you're here, but maybe you're here once every four weeks, once every six weeks, right? I'll see you in six weeks. We'll be in our next series. Uh, we missed you. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, so you're like, I'm, I'm here, but I'm like, I'm, I'm going to come this Sunday every once in a while, as long as brunch doesn't get in the way or whatever. Right. And I get it. Or you're like, I, I don't really, I'm not going to get connected in a house church in a small group. I'm not going to do prayer room. I'm not going to do that event, that women's event, that men's event, that service opportunity, that kind of thing. It's like, I'm, I'm going to be here on Sunday and I'm going to be present every once in a while. But for the most part, I'm going to physically, like physically isolate myself from loving community. Just, you know, got a lot going on. That, that's true for uh, some of you in the room. Maybe for some of you, you uh, emotionally isolate yourself. And so maybe you're in the room and you're building relationships with people, but you're only partially revealing yourself to people. And can I just lovingly say that partially revealing yourself to people is not revealing yourself to people. It's, it, it's not what it means to be known to only partially let people know who you are. Now, I'm not saying day one over coffee or sitting in the aisle next to you, you just blurt out all of your deepest, darkest pains and secrets and your relationship with your parents, right? That's not where I'm going. But I am saying like at some point, as we continue to progress into a community, if we're gonna be real, genuine, loving relationships with one another, we have to reveal the mess of our lives. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of coming to church and it's like this like thing that's not real or true or genuine or I hate using the word authentic. So maybe for some of you, you're like, I'm, I'm present, but I'm actually not present. I'm here, but I'm actually not here. Uh, for some of you, maybe it's spiritually, you're spiritually isolating yourself. So maybe you're here and you're a part of our community and you have a lot of spiritual questions uh, and, and you kind of have just things going on. You need to ask these questions and think about these questions, but you're too... Um, you're too afraid of what people will think about you if you ask these questions. If you're like, hey, I don't, I have no idea uh, who Paul is. Who, who, I have no idea what that word means. Can you help me? Some of you are spiritually isolated. You say, ah, I just, I'll, maybe I'll figure it out later. So it could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual um, isolation. Okay, so how are we supposed to do this? Let me close up here. So we've seen the why, we've seen the how we tend to isolate ourselves. How in the world are we supposed to do this? Because you hear all that and it's like, oh my, great. This is, you really built a solid case. How are we to do it? Okay, so again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, um, he, he built, created a underground seminary during Nazi Germany, right? I'm like, oh, I'm busy. You know? <laughs> no, okay, this guy was busy. All right, so um, he probably wrote, wrote really the number one book on Christian community and it's called Life Together. It's a very small book. You can pick it up. You can get it, uh, Kindle, whatever, you know, whatever you, and, and you can read it pretty quickly. Um, but he, he essentially um, says, uh, he basically says this, how are we to do it? Well, he says, the way that we'll do it is through Jesus. Let me read the quote and then we'll, we'll flesh it out. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. 
No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it, to be, uh, whether it be a brief single encounter or a daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I could stand up here and say, okay, how are we gonna do this? We see all these problems and difficult. How are we gonna? And I could go, Jesus, amen, let's go. And you'd be like, I have no idea what that means. I'm sure he is but I would love a little more detail in that. So let me, just say, let me just say that. So it's Jesus, but let me flesh it out in three different ways. And, and, and Bonhoeffer would flesh these out in the, in the same kind of three ways in life together. Um, this is what he said. Uh, so the first reason that he would uh, say that Jesus is the reason that loving community is possible is he would say that we need others to remind us of what he calls um, our alien righteousness. Now you're like, what in the world is alien righteousness. Well, basically it's this idea that our salvation, our justification, our deliverance does not come from us, it comes from Jesus. So if you become a follower of Jesus, you became a follower of Jesus, not because you had great gifts, not because you had an incredible amount of talent, not because you look a certain way, not because you had an unbelievable amount of resources, you came to God the Father, you're in relationship with God the Father because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We have gotten, when you become a, a follower of Christ, you get uh, his righteousness, which just means that when God the Father looks at you, he sees the goodness and the faithfulness and the perfection of Jesus. That's good news. Like we could shut it down right now. And so what Dietrich says, he says that the role that the community plays is that God has given us the responsibility to remind ourselves of that reality. That our role inside of our loving relationships is to be able to look at one another, to be able to say one another, especially in moments of fear and anxiety and uncertainty. Hey man, I know you're walking through something right now. Can I just let you know, based on the love and the, the affection and the life of Jesus, that God is still for you, that he still loves you that you are secure with the Father based on Jesus. Um, Dietrich writes this. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs it again and again. And when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, he needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Now listen how he ends this. He says the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. In his own heart is uncertain, in his brother's is true. Our role and responsibility inside of the loving uh, relationships in the community that we find ourselves in is to help one another. This is what it means. And so Bonhoeffer says that we're to do the work of reminding our brothers and sisters of our alien righteousness, right? Now, don't go and go, hey, Johannes, you're struggling. Can we talk about alien righteousness, right? That's not, what we're, that's not where you're going. You're saying, hey, God, God loves you based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's still for you. All right, second thing. That's for second thing. He says this. He, he basically says that we only come to others through Jesus, like, man, how is this going to work? I've been steeped in this kind of thing. How is this going to work? He says that really through Jesus is the way that we do it. Uh, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and 14, listen to what he says. This is what Paul says. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, 
you who are far away have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. This is what it means to, to be made new. This is what it means to be justified before God. This is what it means to receive salvation, that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, look what he says. He says, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So why is it you can love someone that drastically gets on your nerves? Like next level, why is it that you can do that? Well, the scriptures would say, and, and Bonhoeffer's just elevating it, and we're, we're affirming it this morning. The reason that we can do that is because Jesus has become our peace. Now, it may be peace from a distance every other week for certain people. You know, it could be peace with boundaries with certain people. But we can be in community with one another and navigate life together with one another, not because we're really great at navigating community and life with one another, although we may be, but we can do it because Jesus, the scriptures say that Jesus has brought peace, not only peace between us and God, but us and one another. This is the good news of the gospel. It's why we can live this way and it's why the world should observe us living this way and be like, what is happening? What is going on? How can you care and love for one another in that way? It's Jesus. Third thing, third final thing, uh, and then we'll be done. Um, Bonhoeffer essentially says, he, he basically says that when Christ came, he took on our nature and on our being and that he is in us and we are in him. He is in us and we are in him. That, that we belong to Jesus in eternity with one another. Let me say it this way. When Jesus comes back, right? The, there's a biblical historical belief that Christ will come for his church. Whatever that looks like, however, we don't know all of that. But when Jesus comes back, he is not coming back for you. When Jesus comes back, he is coming back for us for his church. Not like, where's Brian? I've been looking for Brian. Is Brian here? You know, anyone seen Brian? No. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for his church, for his people, plural, his community. So if the eternal reality is that we live in union and fellowship with God the Father together, Shouldn't we strive for that now? Shouldn't we go ahead and like put into practice now what it means to be a community of people distinct from our world and defined by the way that we love one another? This is the type of church, honestly, that I want to be a part of. I think it's needed. I know I need it in my life. I think it's what will make us distinct. I think this is the most honoring way to follow the way of Jesus in the city of Boston. It's the most distinct way to follow the way of Jesus in the city of Boston. Lots of other things are important, but how we love one another is the essence of the Christian faith.